Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm extremely honored to have as our guest today, Dr. Holly Catterton Allen. She is an adjunct professor of family studies and Christian ministries at Lipscomb University in Nashville. Uh, Her areas of interest are children's spirituality and intergenerational issues, and she leads two national ecumenical conferences. The first is Intergenerate and the Children's Spirituality Summit. Uh, She's also the editor of Nurturing Children's Spirituality and the co-author of Intergenerational Christian Formation. And the book that was kind of came to my attention within the last month is called Forming Resilient Children, The Role of Spiritual Formation for Healthy Development. And as somebody who has been fascinated by spiritual formation, been a spiritual formation director in my past, and somebody who's the parent of four children, this book was incredibly meaningful. Dr. Allen, thank you so much for writing it, and thank you for joining us today. And it's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Uh, Dr. Allen, talk about what are some of the factors that make kids resilient? What are the elements that actually contribute towards children who are able to bounce back from trauma or crises in some of the ways that you identify in your work? The resilience literature is about 50 to 60 years old. They began in the 60s and 70s, really looking at populations of children who were in difficult circumstances. So whole groups of children. They would have cohorts of maybe 600 children in a particular demographic area and geographic area and follow them over the years to see how they did. At first, they were really focused on the kids who were not doing well. Mm -hmm. And about two-thirds of the kids were having trouble in school or were getting into drugs over the years, becoming problems, aggressive, violent, having mental issues. Uh, And after some years of looking and documenting all this, someone had the idea, why don't we look at the other third? Mm. And they began saying, okay, what is it? Uh, these kids came from the same general circumstances. And yet this third, uh, they're doing well in school or well enough in school. Uh, they're not in trouble with the law. They're mentally doing well. They're not having emotional or psychological problems or significant ones. They're not aggressive. They're doing all right. They're getting along with people. And so they began to document what they were seeing. And that body of literature has grown and grown. And uh, Ann Maston kind of did a meta-analysis Uh, recently looking at decades of resilience literature. And she telescoped all of the ideas into about 10. And the first one, and all of us could have said this, she didn't have to do all the study, but having capable parents, you know, parents who are uh, very keenly aware of their children and what's going on in their lives. They listen well, they encourage them, they give them hope. Uh, They carry the weight of being a parent it's not all about the parents, it's about the child. We, we know these things, good parenting, just, and it doesn't have to be spectacular, it just has to be ordinary good parenting. Um, so that, of course, is one. But, you know, not all kids have capable parents, and yet some kids are resilient. So it's not like there's one factor and do it and you got it. And also, it's encouraging to know that even if they don't have all these 10, many kids can be resilient. So uh, that's one, that's an important one. If you don't have, or if a child doesn't have capable parents, they can have a grandparent or another adult in their life that really pours into them, is there for them, uh, provides stability and hope and encouragement and listens and loves. Uh, it doesn't have to be a parent, but you know, ideally it would be, but it can be others. And you all, we all know people who've had a grandparent or an aunt or just another adult who picked up the slack. Uh, sometimes, and especially for teenagers, it can be a peer, a friend mm-hmm. who just says, hey, come over, hang at my house. And it gets them out of that alcoholic setting or whatever is the problem. Sure. Sometimes it's a romantic 
you know, like a boyfriend or a girlfriend when you're 14, 15, 16, someone whose life is going well and you begin to hang with their family. So just somewhat relationships, good, strong, healthy relationships. That is what the thread that goes through those. Um, there are four or five others, then I'll get to the spirituality one. Do you want me to cover those other three or four? Whatever works best for you. Okay. There are some personal qualities. They begin to see in some of these populations of children, kids that manage to get through. And sometimes, you know, we look at those and we say, there's nothing we can do about that. But some kids just were born advocating for themselves. Hmm. Other kids just say, whatever. Okay. And other kids, nope, that's not okay with me. Uh, So some children are are just, they're self-advocates. Some are self-motivated. We worked with a little girl who was 11, whose mother was in prison. Her father had already passed away. We met her when she was 11. And um, first day, I said, well, what are you going to do when you grow up? She says, I'm going to go to Harvard and I'm going to be a lawyer. I mean, I didn't know there was a Harvard when I was 11. And I don't, even, I don't think I knew what a lawyer was in her circumstances. That made more sense. But she had a goal and she was aiming toward it. You know, a lot of kids at 11 are like, I just want to like play baseball. Right. They, they're not thinking further into the future. Some kids are good problem solvers. They come into the world saying, there's a problem. How can I fix it? Others come into the world going, oh, there's a problem. I don't know what to do. That helps in the resilience world. If you look at a problem and say, how can I fix it? Now, as parents or as counselors were saying, yeah, but what if they're not problem solvers? What if they're not self-advocates? What can we do? Most children, most all of us, if we don't have a quality, a particular quality, we can be encouraged even so. So children aren't just born a problem solver or not. They can learn. We can say, what are some options here? So we can help children become more self-motivated, more of a problem solver through some of the ways that we work with them. But still, there are those qualities that seem to help some kids. The other thing I would say, if you don't have capable parents or someone in your life, sometimes your school can make the difference. And You know, and I know children for whom a teacher or just having a fabulous coach or after-school program found them a safe place to belong. And having a good, safe place to belong can be what a kid hangs on to until they get to a place where they can make their life their own. Uh, communities, uh, if life falls down in your house or if your house is blown away by a tornado, if there's a good community to come around and say, your school is still here, your church is still here, your bank is still here, your grocery store is here, we can help you. Uh, but you think of things like Katrina and the earthquake in Haiti, where it wasn't just your house. Your entire neighborhood, your world, your parents' world, everyone around you was in trauma. That's a lot harder to be resilient in that setting where no one can come around you. So if you have a strong community and something hard happens in your particular life, having a strong community can help. And that brings us then, of course, to the last one. And Maston, looking at all the literature, it wasn't always called spirituality. It was sometimes called children who have hope. Children who have a belief that life has meaning. Those kinds of things can make a big big difference. Children who believe in a transcendent other, or they would say God. Mm-hmm. Um, some who are, it's sometimes called religiosity. Sometimes it's called spirituality. It's sometimes called just kids who have hope, kids who believe that life has meaning. She put those together in a group and I put a larger umbrella over it called it spirituality. That was a refrain that ran through the literature. I was thrilled to see it because, you know, and those who've worked in psychology and in counseling, it has not been a world that has promoted Mm -hmm. uh, spirituality as one of the ways we can help people. In fact, 
often, at least in the past, religiosity has been a source of the problem. Right. And to see that the literature pretty much all along has made a space for that. Kids who say, well, I pray every day. That's one thing. Or if their dad's in prison, they go, well, I pray for him. I hope he'll get out. That's a piece of their resilience. Um, those kids who say, God listens to me. He listens to me every day. That makes a difference. So I'm glad to know that the psychological literature is now supporting it. We've known it all along, but it's been shut down and shut out uh, for many decades. But since about early 2000s, that has opened up again. So that's really what my book is about. It's saying children who lean in uh, to the relationships around them, which I believe is also a spiritual quality, and lean into a God who knows them, cares about them, and loves them. These are the most powerful this is resilience armor. I'm committed to promoting that, especially among parents, but also among counselors who have felt a little bit like they're not supposed to go there. Some yeah. have been trained in places who say, you do not go there because everybody's not religious. Everybody doesn't believe in God. Um, but now we're training our counselors that if that is something that your counselee um, believes, then to lean into it is a good thing to share that, to say, tell me more and, and to allow for that. So that's a good thing. That's where this, this book parks on that connection. And I would say it parks there partly because almost all of those other factors are relational as well. And we know that spirituality is relational. That's very clear in scripture. So that's why they're connected. All of it's interconnected. And I love that you say that, Dr. Allen, because I, I initially, if you were to ask me point blank, well, how does what does children's spirituality look like? And I would say, well, that goes to how kids think about God and relate to God. But you you have a more fully orbed, like a more multidimensional approach. Talk about what of how your view of children's, children's spirituality is more than just how a child relates to how they think about God or the Trinity or technically spiritual things. Christians, at least among those whom I've known most of my life, have thought of, if they thought of spirituality, it was kind of a not very common word most of my life, but they thought of it as a child's perhaps relationship with God. The particular group I'm from would not have even phrased it that way. They would have said it would be their belief about God, what they believe yeah. about God. And I would call that their faith, what you believe about God. And uh, I think spirituality is more about that relationship. And the first thing I really should say is that I believe all children, all children everywhere are born as spiritual beings mm -hmm. because we're born as physical beings, emotional beings, psychological beings, all the other kinds of ways you can be a person, a human being, and we are spiritual beings. That is what separates us from the animals, that God has breathed the breath of life into us and made us spiritual beings. Now, we might not, if you're born somewhere in Mongolia, you might not know about Yahweh. All civilizations have had some understanding of a transcendent other, but it is Yahweh God, I believe, who is seeking all children, calling them into relationship with, with him. So from the very beginning, early on, before children can speak, they're seeking relationship with God, but he has made them that way. And he's seeking relationship with them. They are, by the way, and since you have your own children, you know, from the moment they're born, they are seeking relationship with other people. Yeah. We know from the eye studies that children will, tiny babies will look at faces longer than they look at anything else. Mm -hmm. They are seeking faces. And in fact, I remember noticing when I was nursing a fairly newborn that he would look in my eyes. And I thought, how does he know that my eyes are where I am? Mm. He would, you'd think he'd look at my mouth because that was the one that was talking and you know, it was moving. 
So God has made us that way. Just seeking relationship. So the other part of it is uh, I looked at all the definitions that I could find on children's spirituality, some that included a Christian form of it, some that were just a transcendent other. Almost all of them say it is something about a child's relationship with the self, with others, with a transcendent other or God, and some add the world. Hmm. I decided to, my, my definition, my working definition, I, I think I left out world because I wanted to base it around primarily the scripture that says, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. That's three relationships right there. So uh, this is my working definition. Children's spirituality is a quality present in every child from birth by which children seek to establish relationship with self, others, and God as they understand God. That works in any setting. Christian teachers who are teaching in public schools can still believe and know that that child needs to know him or herself. They're seeking relationship with others, even if they don't look like it or act like it. And they are seeking relationship with that other transcendent being that has, I believe, reached out to them. They don't may not have words for it. I believe this starts at birth. Now, we can't really tap into that very well uh, until they can begin to articulate it. And it's not going to be even when they're three. But sometimes it's fairly early when they begin to try to put language around the connections they're seeing. And we as parents and as adults can encourage that and can listen for that and help them find language for that. So yeah. that's my definition. It is broader than we normally think of just relationship with God. Yes. And I think a lot of people can have mental categories for a way that a child could engage with others and a way that children can engage with God. Engaging with self is a, mm-hmm. is a newer category for some people who maybe grew up like I did, like good Midwestern Protestant, like self wasn't really something that you concerned mm-hmm. yourself with. It was you thought about God, you thought about others, and you try to forget about yourself as much as you could. That's right. And in fact, I got the impression that I was really not very important. And what I felt and what I thought, none of that really mattered. The whole point of life is to serve God and to serve other people, which I think is also biblical. But there is a deep, strong sense throughout scripture that I am an I. I am the person that God really knows. He knows my name. He doesn't just know generic folks. Right. But he knows my name. I'm an I. I'm not you. Uh, I have feelings that matter. I have needs that matter. And it's all right to have feelings and needs. Now, you must also accompany that with, you're a you, you're not me. You have needs. Uh, you have feelings. And we we do a better job teaching that. But you and I got a little bit version that says your needs and your feelings really matter. My needs and my feelings don't matter. And so finding a balance, you know, we don't need to swing to, it's all about me all the time. Right. Uh, yeah. And we, you know, I've seen the pendulum go that way a little bit, so I'm not sure. trying to get there, but a good balanced understanding that God is seeking relationship with me and with you because we're both valuable and that he wants to draw us together and he's drawing us to him, but that we need to know ourselves in relationship to God. So I, that's a huge piece for me because of my gap as well. We've, we've swung back a little bit, but finding that balance is important. 
you do a great job about talking about intergenerational faith development, especially the role that grandparents can play. And every once in a while, I'll run into grandparents who either A, maybe feel like they missed it in being fully dialed into their own children's spiritual formation, or they're just nervous about the way that the world is trending. And maybe their children didn't pick a church that they feel confident about, or they don't have a super strong children's ministry, or they started going to church online during COVID and now they don't go to church online at all. And what do you say to grandparents who find themselves kind of bordering on this sense of like panic that they, they have to fish their grandchildren out of a spiritual abyss and make them well. What do, what do you say to people who are well-intentioned, but feel pretty scared? Uh, yeah. A lot of grandparents right now uh, are feeling disconnected. Um, the, the, our tendency is like, we have to tell them everything they need to know. And <laughs> that, that probably will backfire. Um, but what grandparents have that nobody else has with, with their grandchildren, they have a connection from birth. They have just showered their grandchildren with love and care and probably a little spoiling, which is perfectly fine for grandparents. I have discovered um, you don't want to do it, overdo it, but yeah, a little bit of that. So their grandkids just love them. You know, they just like, yeah, their grandma. So you can ease your conversation into things. And this is what I ask my grandchildren. I've been asking them that for years. How are you doing in your spirit? Mm. Not once, not once. That my oldest, by the way, is 21. My oldest grandchild. My youngest is four and I have five of them and they're just spread out across there. Not one has ever said to me, uh, what do you mean? They always answer from the time they're four on. It's like, well, I don't know. It was a kind of a hard week or I don't know. I'm kind of mad at my mama or they'll say, I got to read my book all week. Uh, just they respond out of wherever they are. And I assume that's a spiritual answer right. because it, it has to do with either how they're feeling about themselves or others. And it tends toward God if other questions arise. Mm-hmm. Things like, I don't know, where did you see God today? And at first, they don't know how to answer that until I start saying things like, well, there was this cool wind that came along and it was kind of swirling around and it pulled up all these leaves and they were going around in a circle. And it was just amazing. It was like a little mini tornado. It was really fun. And then they get the idea, oh, I can see God like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then I, I responded in other ways too. Well, I couldn't get the copier to work at school and I was really frustrated and I needed something copied. And you know what? The IT person just happened to walk by. It was so amazing. And so I can say things like that yeah. and they begin to form a framework for what it might be for them to see God. And so now when I ask, oh, where'd you see God today? They answer all over the map, but it's not an uneasy question. Right. And what our what grandparents are hoping for is for their children to know God. They right. assume if they can have some language to know God, that God and that child will get together and they'll say, "How do? Where do I go from here?" Yeah. And yeah. eventually, kids can say, "I want to go back to church, Mom." Right. You need to be doing that. Um, but the grandparents probably don't need to be saying that. Right. They probably need to be nurturing that child self, child others, child God relationship. And it can be done in ways that most people my age didn't grow up doing, didn't have parents to do, didn't have grandparents to do, but with them. So we don't know how to do it. And one of the main messages in my book is it is really common language. Read a book to your grandchild, which you're going to do anyway. And somewhere in that book say, who are you in this story? Again, I've never had a child say, I don't know what you mean. Uh, They pick somebody. And then I say, why are you that person? 
yeah. are the animal. And they're able to reveal a little bit of themselves to you. And eventually all of my grandchildren have started saying, who are you in the story? And then that reveals part of me to them. And I have a lovely relationship with my grandchildren because of those questions. They like to ask me questions about when I was a little girl, about uh, my grandparents, about when we were first married. Now my oldest granddaughter is married. And so she's asked me, I, we had our 50th wedding anniversary a couple of years ago. She came and she said, what have you learned in 50 years? Mm. Um, she'd been married like six months <laughs> then. So I would say lean into that relationship as you are leaning into God, because as you come to know God, that will begin to show what you do with your grandchildren. I don't, did that capture what you were? No, it's that that's beautiful. And I love the fact that you're starting with open-ended, but, but really meaningful and potentially powerful questions, as opposed to, did you do this? Did you do this? Like, did you go to youth group? Yes or no. Did you read your Bible? Yes or no. Do you believe, do you still believe these things that I believe and feel better if you believe them in the same way and manner in which I believe them, um, that those can put kids back on their heels and set up a didactic or antagonistic relationship rather than a nurturing and mutually respectful one. Is that fair? It does that or it does the other. And they go, oh, yes, I believe just what mm -hmm. you do. And so you're essentially saying it's very important to me for you to believe just like I do and that you're doing everything you need and that they, to please you. Right, right. Then that sets up a dichotomy you don't want either. But it makes right. you feel better because you think, oh, good, they're doing everything. Gotcha. Um, but what, what's way more important, and you do know this deep in your heart, is are they coming to know God? Yeah. And how can I nurture that? Because as they come to know God, God himself will draw them. He yeah. will draw them. Yeah. Uh, you're going to keep that little door open uh, in, a, in a sweet and relational way. Right, right. Oh, that's so helpful. Dr. Ellen, one of the things that you mentioned at the tail end of this book was a setback that you had had in your own kind of ministry experience that you and your husband had been put a part of a ch church plant. And my wife, Kelly, and I had an opportunity to plant the church and our kids had an opportunity to grow up in ministry. And just like you, we had some really significant bumps and setbacks and hurts along the way. What did your kids learn about resilience and how to trust God, even when church and church people can be messy or dysfunctional? It was very hard for them. They were uh, 11, 13, and 19. Okay. The 19-year-old was able to process it uh, more as an adult, and he had anger for a lot of years. Yeah. The 13-year-old, as he grew up, he just kind of put it on the back burner. And then as an adult, he began to process it. And he had a lot of questions. Okay. The 11-year-old probably was probably the most hurt. Mm. She was at a time in her life where she didn't quite understand much of anything, but she saw the hurt yeah. and the devastation. And um, it has probably had the longest term effect on her. If I could live it over again, I would do what I told the parents in, in my book. When your family goes through something hard, really hard, the most important thing for you to do is to say to your child, we will get through this. God is with us in this very room. Yeah. And um, I think of the parents in Ukraine hiding under the bombing in the shelters or in the basement, and they actually do know that they might not get through this. Yeah. I mean, people they know are dead. And True. the building over that was just smashed to smithereens and their children's best friends were killed. And for them to still say to their children, yes, the bombs are coming. We're doing all that we can in this 
basement place. Jesus is right here, right here with us. Yeah. And um, I was able to do that uh, in smaller kinds of situations. I mean, I remember when our son was seven or I guess he turned eight, we were flying during the first Iraqi war and um, he was seeing headlines. We were in the airport, big headlines, you know, caution, leave it, you know, don't fly. No, nobody's in the airports. Nobody's flying because of a fear. And he, he, his eyes got about this big and he looked up and said, what will happen if they shoot down our plane? And I assured him it was very unlikely we were in the United Kingdom at the time, but I mean, the United Kingdom was involved in that. Hmm. And I said, it's unlikely. He said, but what if they do? And I said, well, we will all be ushered into the presence of God together. Hmm. And he was like, he looked at me, he looked at dad, looked at brother and sister, pulled a Lego thing out of his pocket and started working out. He seemed fine. I was not as able to do this when our church fell apart. Hmm. I could do it over. I would have been a stronger person who would have said, we will get through this. Yes, it is hard. Yes, it hurts. No, I don't understand. I can't help the people, the other people who are hurting right now. We just need to listen to God and see what we need to do together. But we will get through this. We will. There'll be a time when we look back and remember this is hard, but it's not the end. I don't think I said those words. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to say now. Yeah. Uh, but I I couldn't. I was hurting too much. Yeah. And I think my daughter especially needed me, needed me to be able to look at her straight in the eyes and say, we are going to be all right. God is yet present. He will carry us through even this. Hmm. And I guess I couldn't say it because I'm not sure I believed it. Yeah. So I'm sorry to say that, but it is a really important thing to tell parents now, even if you don't feel it, your children need you to say, God is here. He will be with us in all of this. Yeah. And what's it been like decades later for your kids? How have they found their way forward, having experienced a church kind of small T trauma or big T trauma for that matter? It was big T trauma for all of us and for most people in church. As someone said so kindly, that's the worst train wreck of a church wreck I've ever seen. And I thought I could have lived the rest of my life without hearing that. Sad, but true. Yeah, not not, not comforting. Not comforting. I thought, well, it felt that way to me too, but I was hoping someone had a different perspective. Um, Our oldest two are very involved in their churches. They both carry scars. I would say that the oldest has probably... It's given him wisdom. The first church they were part of for several years, he called and he explained some things that were happening. I said, oh, yeah. He said, you know, I think I recognize some of the same kinds of things that I did in that earlier church. And, you know, it's just not feeling safe. And I said, you know, you probably are. If you think you smelled something you smelled before, smells remain. And they left that church. And later, not six months later, that church just exploded and imploded. And wow. so he has a wisdom about him. Sure. Uh, it's, I would say it's not innate. It was an experience that gave sure. him something that we didn't have. We didn't see some of the things he saw. Then our second kid has had a lot more counseling and he's, because he's had to, forg- he said, I really have to forgive these people. Yeah. Um, and our oldest son was a lot, was angry, but I think he, I think he forgave. The middle one has had some forgiveness issues and he's had to work through those, which is legitimate. Sure. And as adults, we've said, have you gone to counseling? 
And we've encouraged that. We've tried not to be their primary counselor. They have asked questions like, what was this about? Why did that person do that? And of course, some of the things we don't know. Mm -hmm. Our daughter was the most wounded and she was wounded as a child. And those childhood wounds, I think, remain with you longer. She's not asked as many questions. She's not gotten counseling for that. Yep. Yep. She just carries it. And we hope one day she'll be able to enter that room again and revisit and and be able to be healed. We cannot make that happen. And that grieves me, but she is God's child and he knows her as much as I do. Yeah. No, that's so, so good to hear you say that. That gives us hope. I don't, again, don't want to get into all the gory details of our journey, but it's good to hear people who are, you know, a decade or two in front of us and be able to say, okay, it's, it's disorienting. It's hurtful. It's traumatic. It does not have to be life defining. It's an event that can shape you, but it doesn't have to, to anchor you in the past. And that's uh that's a word that I, I will receive today as you speak it. Well, well said. I, I appreciate that. I think our daughter was as hurt by how hurt we were sure. as anything else. Right. And so that is one thing that parents can say, yes, we're hurt, but we trust God to carry us forward. It will not define us. Yeah. And I wish I had been able to know that at the time. So that's what I think hurt her the most. And I wish I'd been able to, to say, I will be all right. God will make sure of that. He will use this for good. And I've been able to say that some years later, but I wasn't able to say it in the time. It's hard because I don't know what your experience was like, but when I was growing up as a kid, like church environments were relatively stable. Like, you know, there was one Baptist church in town or there was one Pentecostal church in town. And if that was your family's heritage, you were there. And if it got wonky, well, you figured it out because that's what, that's what you did. Um, But the last 20 or 30 years, people have more options and things got weird in their own ways. And, but God is gracious and faithful to us in in spite of it all. And that's why I'm so grateful for your book, Dr. Allen, any closing words of just encouragement or hope for parents or grandparents who, uh, just feel are really concerned about kids who are experiencing, um, heartache or disorienting events in their lives these days. I think the most important thing for children is uh, certainly any kind of all the good relationships, but I want to close with this. Children who know a God who is present, who understands the enormity of what they've experienced, who offers them unconditional love, who is at work bringing about justice, who is orchestrating healing and restoration, possess the most powerful resilience armor possible, knowing that I am a child of God, can sustain a child in the most difficult of circumstances. And that is the God we are introducing to our children and the God we believe in, the God that they will see in us as we, parents and grandparents and adults, lean into hard things in our lives. We want them to see that God upholding and sustaining us. Well, thank you for lifting up that God for the people who take your courses, the people who read your books, people who attend your conferences, and people like me. This has been a really encouraging and helpfully framing conversation. So thanks for the amazing work that you do. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. God bless. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.